Well, good evening. Glad you're here for our continuing study of the book of Acts. Just make yourselves comfortable. Come in, get some coffee or tea or whatever, and we'll spend the next uh, 45 minutes or so exploring the book of Acts. Let me uh, say a prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for our country, where we can freely assemble, at least at this time, and as long as we can, we shall to uh, study your word and then go from here and proclaim your good news to this world. I pray you'd open our minds and fill us with knowledge. Open our hearts and change the way we think about this world to be the way you think about this world. And Lord, energize our hands and our feet to go take this uh, to this world. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying the Acts of the Apostles. It's one of the books in the New Testament it's probably the big historical book. It's part of a, a two-volume set. You had the first movie, which was the Gospel of Luke, and that went so well. He made the uh, Acts. I'm just kidding. But Acts is the second part of Luke's story of Christianity. And so we're following, at this point, this stage of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul. Uh, those of you that have been here before know how we do it. If you want to text your questions to that number during class, we try to answer as many questions as we can during class time, so just text your questions there. We have just a few uh, sessions left in our study of the book of Acts, and you're going to begin to see an interesting pattern in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit, which you've seen the Spirit directing everything that's happening in the book of Acts. You really see God's hand working in the growth of his church then and now. Don't, don't think that what we see in the rearview mirror in Acts isn't also going on today. But we're going to see the Spirit moving Paul toward a, an ultimate confrontation, and that begins in our lesson uh, tonight. One thing before I get started, I want to let you know, because people have asked us, we, are, we have scheduled the dates for another Israel study tour. We do study tours of Israel, which are sightseeing, of course. We see a bunch. They're 12-day trips, 10 days on the ground. We, do, uh, we found a really good tour company that we like that's very affordable, all expenses included, and it's part of what Crossings likes to do for our uh, discipleship ministry. We think that if you go there and we'll study at the various places and we'll make the Bible come alive there, that it really ignites our faith. And that's our entire uh, objective with this. So you will see on Friday, I don't believe the new itinerary is up until Friday, but I wanted to go ahead and tell you about it because many of you have asked, when are we going next and would like some heads up to be able to plan for that. So uh, starting Friday, I believe, on this website, you'll see the new itinerary, but those are the dates for it. Just wanted to let you know. We'll, uh, uh, again, just try, we'll see the entire country uh, except the hazardous parts. But we'll see the, you know, we'll really get to see all the biblical uh, parts of Israel and all the story of Israel. So for those of you interested, pass that along. Uh, it's, uh, we have to cap the trip at a certain number of people, but if uh, we'd love to have you come with us. Well, in our last lesson, we left the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. So if you remember, Paul was, uh, he was actually there longer than he's been he was in any other city because it was such a major city and he was able to evangelize the entire province of Asia, this entire area, which we call Turkey. It's the modern nation of Turkey, 
was the Roman province of basically Asia, had several sub-provinces in it. And he was able, based out of Ephesus, the major port city, to evangelize that entire region. And so we saw him spend almost three years in Ephesus. While he was there, and what precipitated his departure was an unbelievable riot. If you remember in our last lesson, we talked about how the simple message of Christianity, of repentance, of changing our lives, you'll see this again, you'll see him preach this again, is turning away from our former lives, turning towards God, and through the grace of Jesus Christ, being reconciled to God. The changes that made in people's lives as they turned away from their old lives fundamentally affected the culture, the politics, and the economics of that entire region. And that's what brought the resistance. And we talked about how Christians living out a Christian life will always provoke resistance from the prevailing culture. Here it was economic. If you remember, uh, it cut into the trade for idols so much that there was a riot in this theater. This is the theater in Ephesus. You're going to see theaters in all of these major cities for a variety of reasons. One of the big ones is it was ancient television. If you want to change a culture, if you've conquered a culture or you want to change the way people think, you need to get inside their heads. The way we get inside people's heads is by stories. Now it's through television, a little bit the internet, but still that graphic media of television is not just entertainment. It is indoctrination. There are ideas behind everything. That was true in the ancient world. All those ancient plays, comedies, dramas, were ways of influencing the way people thought. Every city of any size had a theater. Many of the theaters are still well-preserved. You'll see a couple more in our lesson tonight as Paul moves from city to city. And the reason is most of these cities were effectively, some by conquest, but most of them were destroyed by earthquakes. And theaters, not much to destroy, and so they tend to remain. And so the theater at Ephesus is magnificent. But imagine that theater full of people, holds about 25,000 people, all of them wanting to know where is Paul because we're going to string him up because we feel like he's hurting the business and he's also insulted our goddess Artemis. So for two hours, they sat in this theater looking out over the harbor, which would have been just right there in that time, and shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so it's to me, on the one hand, you think, wow, that's really not a great way for your church planting to start, right? Actually, it is, because this church ends up being influential for indefinitely. But that, uh, that resistance was a sign that it's actually working. Probably the best sign of failed ministry is you don't get any resistance. That means you're really not doing anything that's making a difference. Well, they were obviously making a difference. So when that happened, the Apostle Paul left Ephesus and left the church there in Ephesus. And that brings us to our story. As chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there, make some notes. We're going to be in chapter 20 of the book of Acts. He is going to leave. I'll tell you what's going to happen, then we'll read it. He's going to leave Ephesus, and he is going to go on through Macedonia, this northern part of Greece is Macedonia, to all those churches. He's going to make his way down to Greece. In those days, just the southern part was called Greece. And he's going to come to Corinth. He's going to visit all of those churches 
that he has planted and go back and strengthen them. This is what's called his third missionary journey from about 53 to 57 AD. So in that time, he's visiting all the churches, strengthening the churches, teaching them more. When he gets to Corinth, one of the things he's been doing on this trip is there is hardship happening in Jerusalem and in Judea. And so the Jewish Christians, and by that I mean Christians who grew up Jewish, so who are culturally Jewish, are struggling. And one of the tensions in the early church, as you have seen, was between Christians who grew up Gentiles and Christians who grew up Jews. Now, they're all brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's still hard to get over prejudices and the things that happen. And Paul was acutely aware of that. So one of the things he was doing was collecting donations from all these churches to go help those who are suffering from uh, famine and poverty in Jerusalem. And he thought this is a great way to heal it, and it's also a great way to teach them to be generous and to give. So he's collecting as he goes. When he gets to Corinth, he does one really important thing here, by the way. While he's at Corinth, he writes a letter to Rome. Rome is off the left of our screen. He hasn't been to Rome, but he writes that beautiful letter that we have in the New Testament called Romans. And I'll show you in a minute. He tells them what he's planning to do next, his next missionary journey from here. So he writes that letter probably the winter of 55 to 56 A.D. while he's in Corinth. He intends to leave Corinth and go back to his home base, which is in Syria. It's called Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria. Actually, it was in ancient Syria. Syria has been Syria for a long time and about as well run then as it is now. But he was planning to go back to Antioch, and so he was going to sail. But a couple of things happened. One, he hears about a plot of the Jews to kill him. And most commentators think, and I agree, is that they probably were planning to assassinate him. And it would be really easy to assassinate somebody on a boat. You know, let's go on a cruise, Paul. Great. Somebody here is an assassin. You know, that's just like a TV movie, right? So he decides not to. Also, he's carrying a lot of money. He's got these donations, so he's got a lot of people with him. They decide to go back overland. And so he retraces his steps through these, uh, all these churches, and he comes back to Troas. Troas up here is near the ancient city of Troy. Remember that? The whole uh, uh, Aeneid, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey. So near Troy. And so he traces his way back to there. So let me pause for a second and tell you how Luke records this, because Luke records this entire time period in six verses. In chapter 20, in the first part of chapter 21, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. And Luke begins to really concisely narrate it, but he puts in two longer stories, and that's where we want to spend our time. But let's open up chapter 20, and here's, he's going to tell you what I just told you. He said, when the uproar had ended in Ephesus, after the riot ends, Paul sent for the disciples, and after he'd encouraged them, he said goodbye, and he set out for Macedonia. That's what we just saw. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and he finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. This is likely Corinth, on the south part of Greece. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back the way he came, back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by, and I'll leave out all these guys, but these are all 
pastors. These are all people that have joined the ministry, and he is going to send them all over the world to start churches. But right now, they're all traveling together. He wants to take them and introduce them to the church in Jerusalem. And so they went on ahead and waited at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember the Passover? He observed the Passover. And after that, there's seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he celebrated that in Philippi and then sailed on to Troas. The book of Romans that he wrote during this time tells you what his ultimate plan is. Now, this is not God's plan, but this is Paul's plan. Paul says in the book of Romans at the end, he says, Now listen, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints, meaning the Christians, in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's another name for Greece, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share their material blessings. So after I've gone to Jerusalem and delivered this gift and made sure that they received it, I'm going to go to Spain. In other words, he's going to head way out west, new territory to take the gospel. And I'm going to go to Rome and visit you on my way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So this is what Paul wants to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Rome and evangelize there, spend some time, set up some churches. And then he's going to go all the way out to Spain. So Paul has ambitions because he's given the charge God said to him, I want you to go to the non-Jews in the world, and I'm going to send you to them. And he's been very faithful to begin working around the entire Mediterranean Sea. So that's what Paul is intending to do. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem. As uh, At this point, he is in Troas, and there is one of the places Luke wants to tell us of an interesting little incident that happens there. So while they're in Troas, he spends a few days, and on the first day of the week, Luke said, we came together to break bread. By the way, this is one of a few, but it's one of the first places where you see the Christian practice of worshiping on Sunday. The first day of the week was Sunday, because the Sabbath or the seventh day is Saturday. Jews would worship on Saturday. The Christians began worshiping on Sunday. Why? resurrection of Christ. It's a tradition, but they traditionally would get together either very early in the morning or very late at night. And the reason is Sunday was a work day in the ancient world. It was not a special day. So you had to go to work. So typically Christians would meet at dawn or they would meet late at night. In this case, they were meeting late at night for their worship. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Now, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He's not the first guy that's fallen asleep in a, during a sermon, but maybe the first guy that died from it. And so, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. In other words, he fell and died. But Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him, and said, Don't be alarmed, he is alive. And then Paul went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, now think about that. You think a 30-minute sermon is long? Okay, he's talked all through the night. And talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. 
Luke spends a little time on this. I won't spend a lot, but it's interesting that he, in six verses he covers this entire, uh, you know, half basically of a missionary journey and at least three months of ministry in six verses. And then he spends about the same amount of time on this young man. And I think one of the reasons is he doesn't spend much time on the miracles. In our last lesson, he talked about how Paul, he actually, what he said was, God did many miracles through Paul. And so he talked about it, but Luke doesn't focus on the miracles. He focuses on the message because the miracles were never the point. This is an interesting miracle because there are not many times you see people come back from the dead. But one of the reasons you see that happen is it's probably one of the most powerful things that you could see. I mean, healing somebody, I suppose, could be faked. I mean, although clearly they were amazed. It's like, okay, this is clearly God. What is it you want to say to me? We've seen that over and over in Acts, right? It's like, do a miracle, and they go, okay, you have my attention. What do you want to say? Well, the God that did that wants to tell you this. That's why the miracles happen. But raising somebody from the dead is really the definitive proof that what Jesus said he could do, he could really do. In other words, healing somebody, if you ever thought about this, everybody that got healed is going to die again, and they're going to die. So it's not like a healing ministry says you can live forever. It just says we've healed you to make a point, but then you're going to die later. The idea of bringing someone back from the dead says Jesus can do what he said he could do. It kind of validates that. So you see this powerful uh, lesson with Eutychus. Well, let's move on because I want to spend a little more time in his next stop. When he leaves Troas, they hop down, you can see, along the coast. And this was the normal way to sail. It was very dangerous to sail across the open sea in that time because their technology wasn't very good. I suppose it still is in some ways. So they leave Troas, and they go along down the coastline. And he goes past uh, Assos, which is a city. In that time, it was one of the major cities of the area. It is on an island that has a 750-foot volcanic cone. And in the 4th century BC, so 300 years before this, it was fortified. And so it was a major fortification. In 17 BC, so 17 years before Jesus was born, Augustus, the emperor, uh, the Roman emperor, granted it free city status. And so it was a, a big area, very important city. And so he stopped, moves on there, and then just begins to move down the coast. Uh, Samos, right here. You probably know that, you just don't know you know it, and you probably don't like it because it's the birthplace of Pythagoras. Anybody struggle with the Pythagorean theorem, all that kind of thing? That's his fault, and that's where he was born. So they, he moves on down the coast, and he stops at Miletus. So he goes from Troas to Miletus. He stops there on purpose. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is it is a major city. And another reason is the scripture tells us that he did not want to stop in Ephesus. So we went on ahead to the ship at Troas, sailed on to this various cities, Assos beginning, where we were going to pick up Paul. He'd made arrangements because he was going to walk on foot to there. When he met us, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. Next day we sailed, arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Not because he doesn't like Ephesus, but maybe Ephesus doesn't like him, right? To go back where they, you know, most lately 25,000 of them wanted to kill him. But a bigger reason is likely that he just, uh, he had such an affection for the church there that he didn't really have a lot of time, and here's why. 
He had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time there. He was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. If you remember, he left Philippi in Greece on uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. Fifty days later is Pentecost. And so this journey, he's in a hurry that in 50 days he can make it from Philippi to Jerusalem. So he decides not to spend much time there. This city of Miletus we haven't looked at yet. We spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Miletus has gorgeous ruins, just like uh, Ephesus did. Let me show you a little bit what it looks like. It, too, has a theater. It's theater very original. You can tell those seats just looking at them, that there a lot of those seats are original. So it's another big theater. You can see it's about the size of Ephesus. So this is another theater that holds maybe 20,000 people, which means that the city was likely 200,000 or more. They generally tried to build their stadiums and their theaters to hold about 10% of the population. I mean, it's not a fixed rule, but this was a large city on the seacoast. So Miletus has great ruins, by the way. This is a stoa, a porch, a colonnaded area on the edge of the agora. The agora would be a huge trading floor. I mean, it's where all the commerce happened, all the news. It was, it was the place that people went to buy and sell. There's some great ruins along the side of the Agora. This is, and you don't see too many of these around, and this isn't a great picture, but this is a stadium. This is an area where they would have held games, and so they would have had all kinds of games, and later the stadiums were where they would uh, feed criminals to the lions or wild beasts, and then a little bit later, they would feed Christians to the wild beasts. In fact, in most of these stadiums, you cannot see it in this one, it's, it's graphic when you're standing there looking at them, because you'll see a few of them around, is you'll see, sitting on the stadium and looking across, you'll see a small door where they would let the animals out, the bears, the lions, the wild dogs, and then you'll see a bigger door where they would haul out the prisoners, or the Christians in that case. But the stadium, obviously the earthquakes have devastated it, but this is a pretty good example of how big their stadiums were. And that's what they would do there was sporting. So you see a lot of civic life in these Greco-Roman cities. In fact, we've talked a lot about how Jewish life focused on the family. The Greco-Roman culture focused outside the family. And our culture is very much based on this. If you think about it, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You know, this is probably where their professional basketball team played. And, you know, those kinds of things are happening. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you look at it, the center of culture is outside the home. And so a, a big culture clash happening here. I'll show you another picture. This is the bathhouse. Massive. The ruins of, uh, of the various rooms back behind here you'll see the various cold room and warm room. Here you see a lot of uh, rooms for exercising. We talked about places to exercise, places for massage, another big social place to be. So this is the ruins of a bathhouse, and you can tell it's a large city because it's so big. This is one of many temples. This one's just, you can tell how gorgeous this was. This is a temple to Apollo. Uh, to the oracle of Apollo. They thought you could go there and get answers from the god about your, your questions of life. You know, what should you do? Who should you be? That sort of thing. So this is one of the temples of Apollo. So from there, though, and this is something that Luke spends a lot of time on, and I want to look at a few lessons here in this. This is something that is kind of the highlight of this part of the trip. He pauses there 
but he wants to talk to the elders in Ephesus. So from Miletus, Ephesus is about 30 miles away from Miletus. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my, wife, my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Well, there are several things here I want to point out to you. Uh, just that we learn from the book of Acts. The first is this idea of elders. This is early. I mean, think about it. This is maybe 56 AD. Let's assume the resurrection is 33. So we're just 22 years, 23 years. And this isn't the first time you see elders and the church governance structure, but you see it here being very commonplace even 20 years later. So the early style of the early church appears to have clearly the office of elders. Also, you'll see in other places kind of an office called deacons. I don't know how many of you grew up in churches that had elders and deacons, but churches today have a lot of different governance styles. But the idea of an eldership is ancient. I mean, very early in the church that Paul appointed elders. You're going to see them a little later in this passage called overseers. The word for overseers is episkopos. It's where we get our word episcopal church, but it's usually translated bishop. So the idea of an elder and the idea of a bishop came to be different things in history, but in the New Testament, they are the same thing. They're used interchangeably. Bishops mean something a little different to us. We tend to think more of a, a Catholic-like structure with bishops and that is true, and it happened not early. Right now, the elders and bishops are the same thing in 56. About 75 years later to 100 years later in the second century, you begin to see an interesting phenomenon in the writings of the early church fathers. This is after all the apostles are, have died, and this is in the, oh, 120 to 150 AD. You see that, especially under persecution, sometimes these elders will have sort of one person who was the clear leader of the church. And so they became sort of the elder of the elders. And they called them bishops, and they began to exercise authority. You're going to see in a minute what Paul expects of elders, but they began to exercise authority. And that's where we get our image of the word bishop. A bishop is somebody who has authority over the church. That didn't happen until much later. But as it began to happen in the second century, you begin to see the beginnings of what we think of as the Catholic structure, the Catholic church with bishops and archbishops and finally a pope and that whole ecclesiastical structure. You don't see it here in the early church, but I just kind of, as long as we're here, wanted to let you know, second century is where you see the beginning of that. And it's not until 100 years later or so that you really begin to see a very structured church. Constantine, the Roman emperor who in about 313 A.D. 
made Christianity legal and effectively ended 200 years of persecution of Christians, at that point, you begin to see the, what we think of as the Catholic Church structure really begin to take off at that time. And so it starts here with this word, and that's where that word bishop comes from, is it's a, very, it's a New Testament word. But originally, bishops, overseers, elders, same thing. And we'll talk about what their role was in just a minute. The other thing that I wanted to point out here is, what was Paul preaching? And it's very interesting that he says, what I was teaching were two simple things. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus. This is the essence of the gospel. Because I know sometimes you think, well, what were they talking about? When we talked about Jesus, you know, one of the questions that's fun to ask people is, what was Jesus actually preaching? Oh, probably Sermon on the Mount. Well, he certainly did teach that. But the New Testament says what his basic message that he preached everywhere he went was, repent because the kingdom of God is here. Meaning, it's time to change your mind. It's time to turn from these ways to pursue this new thing, this kingdom of heaven. What Paul is preaching, same thing all the other uh, apostles were preaching and all the other preachers were, is repent, meaning turn, change, move from our old ways and put our trust in Jesus Christ. That is as, probably as concise a description of the gospel. The only reason that's possible is the grace of God to reconcile us through what Jesus did on the cross. But the question then is, is what does that mean for us? That we will turn, we will repent. That's kind of a religious word nowadays. It wasn't in those days. It's like, I want you to change your mind. I want you to change your life. I want you to begin to put your trust in something different. That's the core of the gospel. So if people say, what does it essentially mean to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? It means to turn away from the old ways and to trust, follow, walk with, go after Jesus Christ. That's essentially the description of the Christian life. That's all Paul's preaching. I mean, he's going to talk about some other things, but that's essentially the good news. And you think to yourself, man, that is such a simple little message but it's profound in its implications. I mean, think what happened in Ephesus. That simple message, people believed, trusted Christ, began to walk like he walked, meaning live like he lived, and it totally changed the culture and the economy. It's that simple, powerful message of the gospel. That's what he was preaching, is that simple message of the gospel. The other interesting thing, and you're going to say, this isn't fair, and I think this isn't very fair either, but listen to what's going on here. He says, I am compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. You think, well, that's exactly what you should do, Paul. You want to be right in the, we have these words for it. Be right in the center of God's will. You want to be doing what God wants you to do. And a lot of people say, how do I know what God wants me to do? And we would say, it'd be awesome if the Spirit would just make it clear to me, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem. Next February. No, I'm just kidding. But you're supposed to do this. And you go, well, that's awesome. That's exactly what I want. Well, listen, what else the Spirit's saying? Oh, and by the way, everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. You're like, okay, now wait just a second. I wanted direction. I did not want that kind of problems. But I think it's interesting here that the Scripture shows absolutely no discomfort with this whatsoever. Paul says, I feel compelled by the Spirit, I feel led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And at the same time, the Spirit keeps warning me, oh, by the way, this isn't going to go well. 
and it has absolutely no tension around that whatsoever. That causes us problems usually in our life because we think, well, if God is good and if God is powerful, he will not only direct me in what to do, he will make sure it all works out the way I want it to work out. And I think this is an encouraging passage for this simple reason. You will never be a happy Christian believing that. It just, it just won't happen. And you know that to be true. It's called the roller coaster ride of Christianity. I do what God wants. God makes everything work out the way I want. That's not the way the scripture talks about it. In fact, here Paul says he's leading me here and he's warning me of the problems. That's why, for example, that passage in uh, James makes so much sense in this context. Remember James chapter 1? He says, you should be happy when you encounter various trials. Why? Usually when I encounter trials, I think that means I'm doing something wrong. Sometimes we think when we meet resistance in doing good, in doing what we think God's calling us to do, what the scripture shows us, what Jesus has taught us, we go do those things and it doesn't work out. What have we done wrong? If you learn nothing else from the book of Acts, I hope you learn that means you've done nothing wrong. Well, I mean, maybe you did something wrong. But bottom line, that's not a sign. Think about it. Think about everywhere Paul goes. What happens? He faithfully goes into a town, faithfully tells the Jews this good news. Many of them believe. The ones that don't round some people up, and they beat the tar out of him and send him out of town. Goes to the next town, repeat the same story. Goes to the Gentile places like Ephesus, 25,000 people want to kill him. And so he leaves town. So you see success of the gospel, meaning the kingdom is growing, and Paul is encountering huge resistance. Here you see the Holy Spirit saying, you need to go to Jerusalem, and by the way, they're going to beat the tar out of you too. And so this idea that you only in God's will, when he smooths everything out and it goes well, is not a biblical idea at all. That's how and why James can say what he says. Consider it joy when you encounter trials because God uses those things to perfect and shape and form our faith. Does that make sense? Powerful lesson here. Question? I have some questions that go back a little ways in the lesson. Sure. I figured I was blitzing along. We should stop and catch <laughs> up on the trip. Okay, a couple of questions about the ruins. The stadium had pillars. Were the stadiums covered? A uh, stadium had pillars for two reasons. That's a good question. They are not typically covered. It was not a covered stadium. Actually, that's not true. It wasn't covered because of the pillars. Usually what they would do is they'd put up awnings over the donor seats anyway. Uh, not the general admission, but the donor seats, they would put up awnings. The pillars are likely for really important people or for temples to the gods. So the whole thing wasn't pillared and covered there, the Agora, that little piece of the stoa, that went all the way around, but they typically put awnings, and obviously those didn't last. They got knocked out by a hailstorm or something. Uh, did the theaters have the vomitoria like the arenas and the coliseums? Yes, uh, it's a astute question. The idea of, <laughs> this sounds crude, but it's really pretty cool, it's pretty graphic. What the Romans called the, uh, all the theaters, and the stadiums had this too, is you'd see these exits, really, and we still have them today in every theater, and their name were a vomitorium. And you think, well, is that a place you go to, if you're sick, no. 
It just meant that's where you vomited all the people out. And so it was just an exit. The exits were called vomitoria. Uh, I mean, Romans were not creative, but it's graphic, right? And so any place you would see where people would, would go out when it was through, that was not called the exit. It was called the vomitorium. And yes, they were all built that way, just like our, our arenas are still built exactly the same way the Romans did. Good question. That's what the Romans called them. Earthy people, the Romans. Um, the ships that Paul and the other uh, disciples sailed on, were they cargo ships that also carried passengers? Yes, good question. The kind of, what kind of ships did they sail on? Two basic kinds of ships. Uh, one, cargo ships. You'd just take passage on a cargo ship and you'd pay a little bit because they're going your way. You'd have to wait till they were ready to go. You'd have to go where they were going. It's like being on a bus. You're gonna stop where they stop or Southwest Airlines. You're gonna stop everywhere they stop on the way. The other kind of ship was there were pilgrimage ships. In other words, especially at Pentecost like this, he may very well have been on a pilgrimage ship, meaning a ship that's been chartered to take Jewish people to Jerusalem for the festival. And they too would stop everywhere and pick people up, in which case you'd have a lot of Jews on this ship going for the Passover or going for Pentecost. So sometimes cargo ship, sometimes they were charter ships to take Jews there. And we don't know which it was in any of these cases, but it could have been either one. Good question. Okay. All right. Let's uh, move on with this talk. So he begins to speak to them, and I just want to bring some points out. But this idea of the Spirit, I really want to encourage you, and I know it sounds crazy to say I want to encourage you that when you encounter trials, it does not mean God is mad at you. It does not mean you're necessarily doing the wrong things. I mean, I suppose we could be doing the wrong things and things don't work out. There are natural consequences of things we do that are not wise or that are wrong and so forth. I'm not saying that that, that doesn't mean that, hey, I sinned or I did something wrong and consequently I'm going to jail or I'm gonna, I've fractured a relationship. Yeah, I understand that that happens, but I want you to understand that you, if you're waiting for everything to go well, that's rarely a sign that we're really doing what God wants. So persevere in those situations. Well, let's go on, see what else he says to them. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, hear that again? Preaching about the kingdom, the same thing Jesus was preaching, will ever see me again. This is a, this is a really gripping, I'm telling it to you in pieces, just read chapter 20 because it's very personal. He's lived for three years with these guys. They've built a church. They've all been threatened with death together. I mean, this is a foxhole mentality here. And it's just, it's just powerful. He says, I don't think I'll ever see you again. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word bishop. You elders, bishops, interchangeable. Be shepherds, that's another word. We call shepherds today pastors. That's what our word pastor comes from, is this idea of shepherd. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will come up and they will distort the truth. They will literally twist the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now remember, for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. A couple of things here that strike me. 
I want to talk to you about this because this is a temptation that we have. Look at that. He says, I have told you the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. And I'll just tell you, that's something that I struggle with, and I, I guarantee you every teacher and preacher struggles with. It's nice to come and talk to you about the things that are fun to talk to you about. And sometimes the tendency is to skirt the issues that you don't want to talk about. And that's one of the reasons that we on our Wednesday night classes like to go through books of the Bible, because then you're going to talk about the whole message of God. It's not fun to talk about, oh, by the way, the Christian life inevitably involves some trials and suffering. And you can see in the book of Acts that God used that in powerful ways. So, hey, good news, we're all going to have trials. That's not what you want to tell people, right? But it is the whole counsel of God. It's hard to tell people you need to repent because you know what? You have a terminal illness and it's called sin. It's called rebellion against God. And I've got to tell you, it's going to kill you. I mean, it's going to kill you dead forever. But there's good news. That's not the part that we like to tell. And I like this passage. This sticks in my mind a lot. Paul says, I am innocent of all men's blood simply because I have faithfully told you the whole story, the whole truth. And I think we as Christians need to remember that and be faithful, graciously, lovingly, but just tell the whole truth. He charges them to keep watch over themselves, which is important, and the flock. And notice this. This is a, a beautiful passage. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. What a graphic, striking description of what the cross is all about. Is Jesus Christ died to purchase us back from sin, to be the flock that he's going to shepherd and he's going to love. Finally, he says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance. I have not coveted anyone. So interesting that he ends his, this is the last words he's going to have with them. And the last words are about materialism. That's, that's a, a sobering thought. He says, I haven't coveted anyone's silver or gold. You know that I worked to supply my needs. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help those who need help. We have to share. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is not recorded anywhere else. That's not in the Gospels. It's not in any of the extra canonical stuff. You've probably heard of the Gospel of Thomas, with which some liberal scholars think is, oh, that's another Gospel. It's not another Gospel. It's a list of purported sayings of Jesus, a few of which might be genuine, most of which are not. But this doesn't appear anywhere else. But it is so Jesus. It sounds so much like Matthew 10, 8, for example, where he said, freely you have received, so freely give. No doubt that this is uh, authentic. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said this, he knelt down with them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they uh, accompanied him to the ship. So he leaves these elders saying goodbye to them, sensing that from the Spirit that it's unlikely that he'll be able to come back. Now from there, he's going to make his way from Miletus. He's going to go to Tyre, which is in Lebanon today. And then he's going to move down the coast. He's going to go from Tyre to Ptolemaeus. Ptolemaeus today is called Akko in uh, Israel. And it used to be called Acre back in the days of the Crusaders. Crusaders had huge forts there, big city during the Crusades uh, against the Muslims in that area. And then he's going to make his way down to Caesarea on the sea, or Caesarea Maritima. 
Uh, there were a lot of Caesareas. Why? Because people would build cities and name them after Caesar, you know, trying to gain favor. And that's exactly what Herod the Great did. Herod the Great built this city. And so we continued our voyage from Tyre, landed at Ptolemaeus. We greeted the brothers and stayed for a day. And leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Remember those deacons, those seven guys who were chosen early on in Acts? This is one of those guys, and he's now an evangelist. And uh, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But anyway, <laughs> let me show you a little bit about Caesarea. Caesarea is beautiful. It was built from almost from scratch by Herod the Great. Herod the Great, one of the richest guys in the world, we've talked about him before, he needed a way to get all of the minerals and wealth of Israel out to the Roman world. He found this place on the coastline, and he built a city, basically. And so Herod the Great built this. This is part of the remains of the, uh, basically, the palace. This whole area's palace. This is his little personal swimming pool that goes right out into the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, Herod did things right. There's an interesting little place. I, I should have gotten you a close-up, and I apologize. Right over here, as you're going from the palace, between the palace and the sea, that there are some detention rooms. And that is likely... Uh, where Paul is going to be held later. And I'll show you. I'll try to get you a close-up of that area when Paul comes back here as a prisoner. He's going to come back here as a prisoner. Right now he's a free man, but he'll be coming back as a prisoner. So you see it along the road. This is a hippodrome, by the way. This is a long, I gave you an aerial photo, and I should have put it up here so I could annotate, but you'll be able to see this long hippodrome. Horse racing. This is Remington Park it is basically what this is. The, it goes all the way down here comes down, makes the circuit. By the way, this is where Herod would sit. That's the donor seats. They would always sit at the turn because that's where the crashes happened. And they're, uh, seriously, I mean, it's just like, um, come on, that's the same way it is today, right? And so he had a special little walkway where he could come from his palace directly over to the donor seats. So this is a long race course where they would have horse races, they would have chariot races, uh, it's still in good shape. There used to be, down this side, seats that look like this, but you can imagine what happened on that side. That's on the seaside, and so a tsunami literally just wiped out that side of the Hippodrome. So you've got uh, all the typical things of a major city. There's a great theater there. Most of it is reconstructed, and in fact, they still do concerts there today in that theater. So it just looks out over the sea. So Caesarea is a huge place. Herod built an aqueduct because he didn't have enough water for this city. So he built an aqueduct to bring water from the mountains over a dozen miles away. This is one of those aqueducts. Oh, and there's my favorite tourist at that aqueduct. But basically, Herod just really built this place up. Major Greco-Roman city. Not a Jewish city, but a major Greco-Roman city. And so that's where Paul makes his way. And he said, after we'd been there a number of days, and this is the last message I want to give you before he gets to Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. So he's coming from the Jerusalem area. You've met him once before, you just don't remember it. Back in Acts chapter 11, he predicted a huge famine, which happened in that era. Now he comes to see Paul. He's on a mission. So here comes this prophet to see Paul. And coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and says, here's what the Holy Spirit says. 
This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. The Jewish prophets were always melodramatic. I mean, always acting things out. Read the Old Testament, you see this all the time. And so he says, in this way, they are going to bind the owner of this belt. And when we heard this, we and all the people there said to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Two interesting things about this. First, you've probably been in this situation. In other words, you feel like God's calling you to do this and all your friends are saying, no, don't. This is, you know, no, this is dangerous. Don't do this. Don't go start a church in the United Arab Emirates. No, don't go do this. And that's what Paul was doing. He's got a prophet here that says, oh, by the way, trouble is awaiting in Jerusalem. You notice one thing interesting? All of his friends do what friends typically do, and they go, hey, we should not go. Or you can go, but I need to stick around here. I've got an appointment I can't miss. Agabus doesn't tell him not to go. He just says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when you get there. And that's really interesting because the Spirit moves us, but God also prepares us. Why does Agabus come to tell Paul that? Does he expect that Paul will not go? No. Does he say to Paul, don't go? He doesn't at all. He doesn't try to dissuade him at all. He simply says, God wants to prepare you for what's coming. And I'd like for you to see a lot of what happens in the New Testament, a lot of what happens in this study in Acts is this is God's way of preparing us for something powerful that he's going to do. But I think sometimes he gives us a heads up. He said, by the way, this won't be easy. Remember Jesus when he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome this world, meaning that trouble cannot defeat you, but you will have trouble. Why did Jesus say that? That's not a great way to get followers. I'll just tell you. He said that because God loves us and he wants to prepare us. The second interesting lesson out of this is how they end up. He says, after we realized we weren't going to change his mind, what do they say? This is fascinating. They say, the Lord's will be done, right? I remember my grandparents used to have a saying that you don't hear much anymore, but I think we ought to use it. Uh, if the Lord's willing and the creek don't rise. Have you guys ever heard that? I'll be there if the Lord's willing and the creek doesn't rise. Now, that's still true in Oklahoma, but that's interesting. They said the Lord's will be done. So let me just give you a, just a point I'd like to make about that. Think about where you've heard that before. You've actually heard that saying more than you think you have. You've heard it in uh, the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You heard it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus saying, if there's any way, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but your will be done. And that's what you're hearing here. They said, then the Lord's will be done. If that's the way this needs to happen, then let it happen in this way. You can look at this in a couple of ways. This is a profound statement, and I don't have any issue with people who say this. One sense, you can say it like a fatalist, like, well, the Lord's, you know, Eeyore, this is Eeyore. If Eeyore said this, it'd be fatalism. <laughs> Lord's will be done. We're probably all going to die, you know? Might as well die now, right? So that's, it can be fatalistic, but that's not what they do because then they all pick up and take off. They're all going to go to Jerusalem with him. It shows a confidence. It shows a confidence in both the will and the sovereignty of God. 
Think about that. You just had a prophet tell you, oh, by the way, God wants you to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to beat the tar out of you when you get there. So, have fun. See you, Paul. And Paul says, okay, I'm going. What kind of confidence does that have? Well, it's not superhuman. I know sometimes we go, oh, I guess we're just going to have to grit our teeth and do it. No. What it, it springs out of our faith, not out of our self-reliance. It's a fundamental trust that God is sovereign, that all these events move to God's purposes. They don't always move to my comfort, but they always move to his purposes. And if you see anything else out of the book of Acts, that's exactly what you see. What are the Romans, in a minute, actually in two weeks, the Romans are really going to try to stomp this religion out. The Jews have been trying to stomp this out for a while. The Ephesian uh, guys were trying to stomp this out. In other words, everybody's got a purpose here to try to shut this down. They've been trying to kill Paul for some time. Next week, they're really going to try to kill Paul. Very interesting little plot, by the way. So they're, they're trying to kill Paul. So you think that the power is on the side of the world trying to oppress. Is this starting to sound familiar? This is our life. This is our world. There are forces that want to power in this world that want to shut you down. They want to shut down this simple message of let's turn away from who you were, let's repent and trust Jesus Christ and follow him. That little message is very threatening to the world. You've seen it in Acts. It's true in our world as well. This statement, the Lord's will be done, you know, not my will but your will, is a foundational expression of trust that you actually are moving the events of history, not those people that want to do us harm. It is a powerful statement of trust. And to me, it should give us the confidence in two things, that God loves us and he is sovereign. And those two things cannot be defeated. Romans 8:28. in all circumstances, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's that really mean? It means that there are no circumstances that do not move to his purposes. Paul's going to get mistreated in Jerusalem, and God's going to use it for huge purposes. Paul understands that. That's why he went from town to town. That's why he said, I bet you we get... Can't you just see him walking into town? Paul says, I got two to one that says we get beat up in this town too. Anybody taking that? And everybody's like, no, I'm going to have to have at least five to one to take that bet. I'm just not going there, right? Why do they keep doing it? They know that God loves them, and they know that everything moves to his purposes. Trusting in God's love, trusting in God's sovereignty. I love that statement because I don't take it as a fatalist, like, oh, God's will be done, unfortunately. It's no, okay, then we'll submit to God's will. That's what we want to be done. Does that make sense? Powerful message here. These guys are not sulking on their way to Jerusalem. Paul is ready. It's like, let's do it. This is what God wants to do. We're going to go do it. Okay? Question? Good? All right. Well, then that's your assignment. I want you to live Boldly, I want you to think, meditate on this a little bit. If nothing else in this lesson, read chapter 20 and 21. There are many things I haven't touched on here that are profound, but take this away. You can live boldly knowing this, that the fact that things don't go smoothly does not mean you're not in God's will. In fact, it's probably more likely a sign. If you're trying to follow Jesus Christ and live the way he lived and live out what he's told us to do and you're having troubles, that's most likely a sign you're doing right. You're doing the right thing. And then 
when you face those trials, realizing the God who loves you is a sovereign God and all the events in your life move to his purposes and he will indeed deliver us to the end. That's what Paul and his companions believe and it's still true for us today. Next time, he's going to get to Jerusalem and fascinating things happen. The Jews are going to stage a riot like you've never seen and the Romans are going to enter this picture and actually swoop him up not exactly to safety, but they're going to swoop him up. It also has occurred to me, I have not shown you what Paul looks like. So I have access to his Facebook page, and next week I will show you <laughs> what Paul looks like. I'll see you next week.